Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Barry Popkin, PhD. Dr. Popkin developed the concept of nutrition transition, the study of dynamic shifts in our environment and the way they affect dietary intake, physical activity, obesity, and other nutrition-related non-communicable diseases. His research program focuses on understanding the global shifts in stages of the transition and programs and policies to improve the population health linked with this transition. Dr. Popkin has played a central role in placing the concerns of obesity, its determinants, and its consequences on the global stage. He has mentored over 66 PhDs, as well as large numbers of junior faculty and postdocs, and he has published over 600 refereed journal articles. PLOS rated him as one of the top cited scholars in the world among 7 million scholars in 2017, and he was rated number 203 out of 6.8 million scientists in the world. In the episode, Dr. Popkin shares whether it's better to drink diet or regular soda, some common misconceptions about sugar, simple shifts to make if you want to lose weight or maintain your current weight, and more. Before we get to the interview, I want to share an exciting new opportunity with you. As you may know, outside of this podcast, I have a nutrition coaching practice. I always work with a few clients one-on-one, but I know that one-on-one coaching can be a hefty investment and isn't always the right choice for everyone, which is why I created a membership site. The Health Investment Membership is for anyone who wants to lose 5 to 50 pounds in a healthy, sustainable way without dieting, detoxing, giving up your favorite foods, or completely overhauling your lifestyle. Week after week, I guide you through small, gradual changes you can make to look and feel your best, but you decide the specifics so that any change you make fits with your unique personality, likes, dislikes, and lifestyle. That way, the healthy habits you implement will be sustainable long-term. I've set up the membership in a way to get you the exact same results as my one-on-one clients, but at a teeny tiny fraction of the cost. Inside the membership platform, you'll find a 12-week challenge, nutrition library, resource library, and more, but you'll also get accountability through a private Facebook group, bi-monthly coaching calls, and bi-monthly Q&As. I could go on and on about the health investment membership because I'm so excited about this comprehensive, affordable weight loss resource, but I know you want to hear from Dr. Popkin. So to learn more, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash join, or just click through the link in the show notes. One more thing, if you're listening to this episode and learn a lot, and I know you will, please, please consider sharing it with your friends, coworkers, and family members. Let's spread the word about the Health Investment Podcast so that we can empower as many people as possible to invest in their health and feel like a million bucks. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Popkin. Enjoy.
Brooke Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dr. Popkin. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I discovered your work and did a deep dive into it, and I'm just so excited to share your knowledge with my listeners today. My pleasure. Would you start by telling us what led you to become a professor of nutrition in the first place? Well, I have a very strange route. I'm an economist by background, but I had a college year in India living in a slum and studying urban redevelopment. Uh, During that period, I really started to be aware of how human capital, what we call it, education, health, welfare, really affected people's lives. And I came back for my senior thesis year at the University of Wisconsin and decided uh, picking among different areas that nutrition was one that had never been touched by the economics field and did a thesis on the economics of, of nutrition, which actually went on to be published three, 400 copies by OEO and used. And it was more at that point in time, we had hunger in America and it was more that side of the coin. But I, and I began to be very involved in that and went on on my, on my master's and doctorate to keep focusing on that area from a variety of different points of view. Uh, went off to Asia to work, teach at, with the Rockefeller Foundation and field staff and kept working on kind of food and nutrition during all my research. And out of that is essentially came my focus on this and I got and I decided to shift from economics departments to public health departments and was offered positions at several universities ultimately turned them down because I couldn't bite to them and then I was in the Philippines and I got an offer sight unseen from Chapel Hill University of North Carolina I'd been there during the civil rights era and thought it was a potentially great place to live. So I accepted it. And here I am in a department (laughs) of nutrition with a joint appointment in economics, but predominantly my work is in nutrition and on nutrition topics. Yeah. We were talking off air and then you can bike there. You can bike to your current job. So that's great. (laughs) So I know you've done some recent research on sugar. So I'd really love to dive into that. Can you just start by explaining why you chose to focus on sugar specifically? Well, my work in sugar began in the 1990s. I I first noticed that around the world, sugar intake was going up really quite significantly. And I wrote a paper called The Sweetening of the World's Diet and showed some of these trends. 
around the world. And from then on, as we began to understand all the other health effects of, of sugar, I was involved in work around high fructose corn syrup and made hypotheses that maybe it was worse. Ultimately, it turned out that high fructose corn syrup it acts just like any other sugar and has no more negative effects than any other. But that hypothesis led to tons of research, which helped us understand today all the enormous roles of sugar. Subsequently, we began to understand how sugar, when in a beverage that we consume, doesn't affect our food intake. And from that became a focus of mine on sugar-sweetened beverages uh, around the world, the, the Cokes and Pepsis of the world, and, and wrote a number of papers on these different topics in the U.S. and around the world on shifting diets and how much soft drinks were increasing. Then got involved in evaluation work with other kinds of efforts, but used the techniques we, use, we developed to do a large study evaluating first the Berkeley tax, and, and also were invited to by colleagues of mine in Mexico to work with them to evaluate their sugar-sweetened beverage tax. But throughout it all, I had real interest in understanding non-nutritive sweeteners and under sugar in its various forms and, and what was good and bad for health in a variety of ways and engaged in a number of studies uh, relating sugar to cardiometabolic health myself and was very involved with others doing research in that area. Interesting. So you said that high fructose corn syrup turned out not to be worse than other sugar. Yes. But I feel like right. we, we see wrote, it everywhere. Yeah. Right. George Bray and I wrote the seminal article hypothesizing this was a problem which led to enormous attention on high fructose corn syrup. And in the end, the, with all the different clinical studies done, we understood that it acted exactly the same. We had hypothesized that because it had increased so much in consumption and was really a leading cause of the increasing non-communicable diseases and, and weight gain linked with drinking sugar-sweetened beverages. But as it turned out, you could have sugar in the beverages or high fructose corn syrup, and it wouldn't have the same effect as was shown mm -hmm. in literally now hundreds of studies. Hmm. So is that something that companies use as sort of a health halo? They'll put on their package, no high fructose corn syrup right, and make right. it seem healthier? That's right. They're, they're playing on the lack of knowledge of some of the people that buy their products. Uh, and it really doesn't matter whether you have regular sugar from sugar cane or sugar beets, which is what we have in our country, or whether you have sugar from corn or other byproducts that you can get sugar from. It, they all have the same effect. And the same is true, very importantly, for sugar coming from fruit. If you take the fruit extracts, which are all sugar, out of a fruit, it's essentially a normal sugar, but it has, again, the halo of a health effect. So you'll see all the organic products have some kind of sugar concentrate from a, from a citric concentrate or others 
but really it's just plain sugar. Hmm. Is the problem with sugar that it's addictive or like you said that we still eat the same amount when we drink sugar? I mean, what is the effect really of all well, these sugars? Well, we, we aren't sure it's addictive. However, hmm. when you have a certain set of foods that are very high in added sugar, sugary beverages, other things, with all the other additives, they really make us want to eat more. And in the process, these foods are quite addictive based on most basic definitions of wanting to repeat the consumption and repeat it often. So if you drink a sugary beverage, you want to drink more. They've got flavors, other things in them, many, many different additives which enhance their flavor and, and palatability and make us really want to consume more. And the industry's learned how to do that. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not only for sugar added to, to beverages, it's also sugar added to food products. And you see increasingly in our food supply, you go to a supermarket, if you look carefully at ingredients, you'll find increasing numbers of products have foods, have sugar added in one mm -hmm. form or another. Right. So going back to the fructose, you said extracting the juice, that just makes it pure sugar concentrate. Right. But then and, eating and, the fruit has the fiber with it. So that's still better, obviously, right. than drinking the juice. Exactly. And in fact, for a long time, what the sugar, what the industry, orange and the, and all the, the, citrus fruit that was creating juices for America, particularly orange juice, they were essentially removing the sugar, taking some of the flavors with the sugar and separating those from water. And you'd buy the concentrate and then add water to it. And, and, and when they put the concentrate together and sell you on in a bottle, it was essentially tasted like fruit juice, but really had been deconstructed and put back together. Mm -hmm. Right. So fruit juice, would you equate fruit juice to soda? Essentially, yes, then? I would. And most pediatricians and physicians and scholars who have seen the studies, uh, if you consume fruit juice for one day, it doesn't matter. But if you consume it consistently over time, it's linked to increased risk of diabetes, increased risk of weight gain, increased risk of many cardiovascular problems, no different than a, a normal sugar. But the most prominent set of research we have is, is many studies showing it, it, fruit juice will increase your risk of diabetes. Uh, mm -hmm. We're actually trying in some countries to tax it because it is not a healthy substitute for sugar-sweetened beverages. Water, unsweetened tea and coffee, all are, but certainly mm -hmm. not uh, fruit juice. Mm. I know you've done research too on the difference between caloric sweeteners and low-calorie sweeteners. Can you describe some of your findings on that? Yes, uh, this is a very complex area. You see hundreds of studies that say I got the, the rat got diabetes, the rat changed uh, all sorts of behaviors, the rat's biology changed when they consume too much sugar. Well, 
you can't equate rats with human beings because mice and rats and that used in the labs, they have a hundredfold per gram of body weight, the sweetness preference for sugar that we have. So they're very sensitive to sugar intake. On the other hand, when we consume sugar, it does have certain health effects, clearly, but it doesn't disrupt our body. And when we shift it to diet sweeteners, all these what we call non-nutritive sweeteners increasingly today, or low-calorie sweeteners, any of the above, these sweeteners are, are thought to have certain effects on our 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 biomic, our, our stomachs and some of the stomach acids and so on. And that may be the case. Our microbiome is affected by them. That's work still being done and we aren't conclusive on that. But when people have taken the random control trials done, the most recent was a year long one done at Harvard, very well done random control trials on adults. They don't find an effect. They find no effect on weight, diet, or any of the biomarkers that are linked with diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, or cancer. So, but then when you go to the longitudinal studies, there are two clusters of these. Most of them ignore diet or they just control for it. But when you split the diets of people in Europe and the U.S. and to healthy eaters and Western eaters, kind of the new high fat, fast food, junk food kind of diets that Americans normally eat with a lot of added fat, sugars, and sodium in the diet. Those diets are associated when you drink them, when you have a liquid with non-nutritive sweetener, uh, with increased risk of all sorts of problems. However, mm -hmm. if you're a healthy eater, uh, it reduces your risk and increases your reduction. So in other words, healthy eaters using, using a Diet Coke or a Diet Pepsi or any other kind of diet fruit drink to cut their appetite, cut down the amount of weight they're gaining from, from a, a beverage, it works. It actually helps them. But if you're an unhealthy eater, you're already increasing your risk and it just adds more to it. Mm -hmm. So the difference is really very much linked to your diet. Uh, we did a study uh, looking at the effects of the diet on Western diets versus healthy diets uh, with one cohort group that had ignored that the year before and the results turned around. Similarly, the Harvard group did it. They interacted the diet with the diet sweetener, what kind of food they were eating. And it turned out again that there was no effect. Hmm. Uh, so if you treat a diet properly, the longitudinal studies don't show it. However, we're concerned about it. There are certain other things that link with diet sweeteners that might have a problem. So what we've been doing, like we did in Mexico when we had a front of the package labeling that warned about this food is high in added sugar or high in sat added saturated fats or high in sodium, that they had a, a label on it saying, if it contains a diet sweetener, then the label went on saying contains diet sweeteners not recommended for children. Uh, because one of the fears is that children diet will 
be rec will be affected and they'll have a greater sweetness preference for their life. We don't know that to be a fact, but it's a meaningful speculation. So we want to warn parents about that. If I had, and we're trying to put that into laws in a number of countries. Our country, unfortunately, is not ready for warning labels or information boxes like that on a package, but it will be someday. So many countries are starting to do that. So, and that's, that's realistic of what we can do now. I don't think for any adult that's eating healthy, eating a healthy diet, that consuming a diet beverage has an effect based on the random control trials and the other literature done to date. It will help them lose weight. And that's still the, the mantra in, in obesity prevention circles with all the doctors dealing with patients. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's really, there's, a, but the blogosphere out there makes us think that they're poison. So mm -hmm. there's a large subset of Americans who had started to stop drinking sugary beverages when they heard about the health warnings from them, middle, higher educated Americans uh, who did that. And after the blogosphere started talking about the negative effects of diet sweeteners around 2007, eight, nine, and you saw many headlines about rat studies and stuff saying, Mouse are all screwed up. Mice are screwed up when they consume diet sweeteners. That led to them shifting to water. Now, that's not a bad trend. That's perfectly fine. Um, but for some people that needed that diet sweetener to help them with their diet, it's not fine. They can certainly do use the diet sweetened beverages and use mm -hmm. it when they're tea and coffee with no problem if they're consuming a healthy diet. I see. I know I've read, and this may, you may debunk this, but that the low calorie sweeteners taste so much sweeter than caloric sweeteners so that they could actually make us crave sugar more. They, they have a higher sweetness preference. However, the amounts they use in beverages, when they replace the sugar and the Coke, they don't increase the amount of sweetness. So yes, they're 200 to 700 more times more sweet for the same gram of sugar or dye sweetener, depending on which sweetener, than they are compared to the regular sugars. But mm -hmm. they don't put that much in. So that's, that's a fallacy that has not been shown to be mm -hmm. true by people doing assays on the diet beverages. They put okay. so little in relative to the sugar. That's why it's very cheap for the manufacturers to do it. And they don't mind pushing Diet Coke and Diet Pepsi and Pepsi Zero, Coke Zero and Pepsi Max mm -hmm. and, and such. It, it saves them money. Mm. So you mentioned that there is some emerging research on the low caloric sweeteners on the microbiome. Yes. And that's it, something I've seen headlines about, but you're saying the research isn't there yet. No, it's still provisional. It's something to, to be concerned with. And mm -hmm. if you're really health conscious and you can drink water or unsweetened tea or coffee, certainly better to do that. But consuming some diet, nobody's consuming enough diet sweetener to have a major effect on their system. 
except people consuming eight to 12 uh, Coke Zeros or Pepsi Maxes a day. And that's a very tiny subset of people. Right. So, okay. So you would even say one diet beverage a day? Yeah, or one or two, or putting it in your tea and coffee several times a day. That's not going to have a major effect. The the studies are done. I mean, it will have a minor effect on your microbiome. But Mm -hmm. we have no long-term literature to say that's bad for our health. The long-term studies, like the year-long Harvard study, say it's not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we we have to be very careful. Mm-hmm. That study was powered to look at for a year, the longest of any study, between water and diet beverages and the differences on your metabolic state. So it's, it's really the best. We have several six-month and many three-month ones or one month trials, but that's a long term to check. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're saying it can be especially helpful for somebody who wants to lose weight because it's still kind of a treat without getting all the extra sugar calories. If they're eating a healthy diet, yes. If they're eating right, okay. Yeah. So that's that's maybe then where it gets kind of blurry is Right. It doesn't help. The person who goes in and get a, gets a Big Mac and a Diet Coke is not being helped. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what we're talking about, getting a pizza and having a diet beverage with it. Right. Interesting. Are there other misconceptions out there that just really kind of irk you about diet sweeteners? Well, I, I think sugar? that that's the major stuff with diet sweetener at this point in history with our knowledge. I uh-huh. should add that because science changes and we learn right. more things over time, just like the microbiome has come on us and, and lets us understand how it can affect our long-term health. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, at this point in time, we know all sugars are equal. If it's any kind of caloric sugar, it's equal. Honey, uh, the fruit. Agave. The, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, any of them. Yeah, any of they try sugars. to use those, you know, like, oh, I once asked for a margarita without sugar when we were out. And they said, oh, it doesn't have sugar in it. We only use honey. So I right. do think there's a lot of misinformation. <laughs> sure. Certainly that's the case. And the same goes for any, or they say natural sugars, uh-huh. uh, whatever that means. They're all natural. The processing to get sugar out of sugarcane and sugar beets is not major. There's as much processing to get stevia from a stevia plant. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've got to be careful. Those Words like natural are used in such misleading ways and or healthy sugar or whatever. They're not. Uh I know Stevia is really having a moment right now. So a lot of people who have sworn against the other diet sweeteners are all about Stevia. Right. And Stevia actually is one of the sweetest of them Hmm. uh, in terms of comparison with sugar. So if a stevia package really contained all the stevia that they put in it, you'd be getting, it, it doesn't. It Obviously, mm-hmm. there are other things in there to water it down, but make it look like you're getting something meaningful because stevia is 700 times sweeter than the same gram of sugar. Mm. 
Well, I think it's such a good point you make as well is we have to just be open always to new research. And I think people like to get very attached to what they've learned and just kind of follow their dietary pattern like a religion almost and not be open to new and emerging research. Uh, But that's not, I mean, yeah, that's not a healthy way to go about things, I guess. Right. Not at all. Right. Is, can you compare how we consume sugar and diet sweeteners in the United States versus other places in the world? Are we consuming more of the caloric sugar or more of the low caloric sugar here? Much more regular sugar. The amount of of diet sweeteners other than in beverages is not that great. Mm -hmm. Um, It's increasing. It's increasingly found in foods, but, and it, and if we ever put a warning label on food high in sugar, you'd see it increase even more. Like we've seen in Chile, another high income country that, that has warning labels on its food products. Uh, and they replaced enormous amount of the sugar in the foods and beverages uh, because they could. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So the way to know if you're eating something that has low calorie sweetener is just you look at the ingredients or the nutrition facts and ingredients on the back. And then right. you know it says zero grams of sugar and the ingredients are something like stevia. Right. That, okay. Good to know. Uh, I'd love to also kind of touch on some of your research in your book, The World is Fat, where you discuss some of the global trends that have led to today's obesity crisis. And I know you suggested that it's not so much due to the poor dietary choices as it is more about technology and government policy. And the well, food yes, but so let me, let me, the, the way we've changed if you mm-hmm. could go back to America in 1950, we ate pretty much real food. Even the canned and packaged food didn't have a lot of chemicals added other than some preservatives. So ready-to-eat cereal today that looks nothing like it did back then. Mm-hmm. Then it was really wheat with some preservatives uh, baked in certain ways. At, would create a ready-to-eat cereal and so on for most of the food products. What happened between, so I'm going to talk about first how we eat and how it's changed. Then I'm going to mm-hmm. talk about how we drink and how it's changed and how how we move. Each of these has had major roles. So when you think back to that time, people bought a lot of loose produce, meats and poultry, and they bought a limited number of packaged products unless they were frozen fruit and vegetables or canned. And and the food wasn't very processed. In the 1970s, we started a revolution of introducing modern food science to food processing in ways that we started putting chemicals in to add flavor, all sorts of additives. We started putting in smells into products that created more palatability. And we started shifting our food supply of everything to be more food-like than real food. And 
you'll notice on ingredients on a package of some ready to eat cereal on many of the packaged foods that you buy, or if you could see the ingredients on the fast food you eat, it'd be the same. And they have many, many chemicals, additives, many other things added to them today. And so Michael Pollan calls them food-like. And mm -hmm. in reality, they are. And that shift took a long time. It started in the 70s. Sugary beverages were really upped in their consumption level because first they started adding things to make them even more palatable. And second thing that went along with that was modern marketing. You started to have television becoming quite popular as well as radio. And you started seeing marketing of food products take up a big hunk of TV space. Uh, and that could be beer, it could be other beverages, certainly Pepsi and Coke had huge ad campaigns and sugar sweetened beverage consumption quadrupled. Similarly, uh, it happened for foods, packaged processed foods. Today, the average American consumes about 50 to 65%, depending on them, and the average adult, and the average child up to 70% of what we call ultra-processed food. These are foods that are ready to eat, ready to heat, or very easy to prepare. And they have all sorts of additives and products and things in them to increase their palatability. That includes fast food that we buy in, from mm. the chains. So all of this has created a different kind of food supply than we had 50 years ago across the globe. Now, the difference is in our country, it happened slowly and the same in Europe, Japan, Korea, because we were all high income by the 70s and 80s. So, but the rest of the world was left behind. But then they started catching up, but we'll come to that later. Then let's shift to how we drink. One of the things that we didn't know for the longest time, and we only really discovered in the 1990s and later, was that what you drink is not associated with what you eat. And that goes back all the way to we were hunter-gatherers, and we had to drink water all the time. You may not know it, but if you don't drink water for three to seven days, you die. No one can stay alive without water. On the other hand, actually, any of us could go for two months without food and live. And we have many, many examples of that across the globe. Gosh, my own partner who had cancer had for the last two and a half months of her life was off food and and she lived. Wow. Uh, so, so that's again something to understand. Then, then you think of the beverage revolution. We had tea, coffee, and water were the main beverages consumed most of the time by 1950. And sugar-sweetened beverages started increasing from a very occasional beverage. And, but it didn't really increase much until the 70s and later when the modern marketing, the modern Coke that we consume today really 
became part of our lives. And the same for all the other beverages, the fruit drinks, the fruit, all of them. Uh, so that is explained what became a big revolution. Then we started getting energy drinks and smoothies and a million of these beverages. But every one of these beverages, when we drink it, affects us in the same way as water. It doesn't affect what we eat in food. And that goes back to that basic need as a hunter-gatherer that you needed food every several months to live, but you needed water constantly. So when food came around, you had to gorge on it. If you got a deer, you didn't know how to preserve it for a long time. Later, they learned how to dry it and other things and add salts and other things and preserve it in other ways. But they didn't know that at first. So they had to eat it right away. You caught a fish, you ate it right away. And you're, you're, you, if you ate a lot of it, your stomach would be really full, but you still needed water. So biologically, something happened and we evolved in a way that what we drink doesn't affect us. And that was fine when it was water or breast milk. But when all of a sudden it started becoming all these sugary beverages or adding a ton of sugar and other flavors and liqueurs and things to coffee, they became sugar-sweetened beverages. Mm -hmm. And the energy drinks, the fruit drinks, the carbonated beverages, the coffees with all these things added that are bottled, the bottled teas that have sugar in them, they're all equal in their negative effects on our weight and our risk of diabetes, our risk of hypertension, risk of, of major cancers, 13 of the 15 major cancers, and most forms of cardiovascular disease. So yeah. that drinking in and of itself of all that sugar has really had a different effect on us because it doesn't cut our food intake. But if you eat a candy bar, it will, you'll cut down and you'll fill, be full, and you'll mm -hmm. cut down a little less on other food. So a slightly different effect. Uh, but let me go back to food and go further on. As we started creating these ready-to-eat and ready-to-heat foods, the industry started pushing snacking and drinking your Coke while you're having your, your, your break and having donuts, having biscuits, having all these ready prepared products that you consume along with your snack. We did not snack in the US in any meaningful way until after World War II and later. In mm -hmm. fact, at 1900 and before, there's no country that snacked. They had, we had street food for occasional fairs and other things, uh, but we didn't snack. Today, the average American has three to four snacks a day, and we've got a lot of our kids that are consuming eight to ten, and there's a lot, some set of, subset of adults that are constantly snacking. Mm -hmm. Now, as we added the snacks, it affected our whole hunger sensation. We were programmed to want to eat two or three meals a day and not get hungry until the next meal. But as you started eating during this time, you started getting rid of your hunger mechanism that, that controlled what we ate, and we started eating more. And if you learned, and even today, the food industry say, sees 
increasing snacking is its major growth area. And it's mainly ultra-processed, highly processed junk food and beverages. Things with excessive added sugars, excessive added sodiums, excessive saturated fats, and often a lot of refined carbohydrates, the worst foods that we could consume, whether it is a ready-to-eat or ready-to-eat snack or junk food. So the snacking in all Western countries went from nothing up to two to three meals a day with a, a subset of 20, 25% consuming many more. But mm -hmm. what then, so I just want to continue this one last example. So when I went to China in 1989, 19, and we did our first set of surveys and we continued to do them every two years and we did detailed diet surveys, the Chinese didn't snack they didn't have sugar in their diet in, in 1990. You move to today, every two to three years, snacking doubles. And you find increased snacking there. And in fact, in Mexico, Brazil, every country I've looked at diet, Korea, elsewhere, the same thing has occurred. Snacking has gone way up. So that's another way that we're killing the world. We're not only marketing eating your food with highly processed, unhealthy products, but adding extra meals of snacks and reducing our, our hunger needs and just destroying our systems controls. Uh, but then let's go to how we move. So even earlier than the food revolution, we started to have a revolution come the 1890s, 1900. First, we started getting gas and coal that we could burn stoves and we didn't have to go out and carry wood. And then we got oil and gas and all these other things and electric stove. So that we created a revolution in, at, in the workplace, in the home place. We also got washing machines and dryers. We got refrigerators. All of these things took out backbreaking work. We got piped in water, so we no longer had to go out and carry buckets of water from a pump. All of these things changed how we work at home. At the same time, and it's been increasing ever since, the microwaves, the automatic coffee makers, you go on with all the gadgets, the Cuisinarts, the mix masters, all of these changed arduous work to simpler work. Uh, at the same time, how we moved, we went from walking to developing the wheel, creating carts, and then creating bikes. And then we started with Henry Ford and others creating all sorts of automated devices and ultimately tractors and plows and many other things that were all automated. So we automated away our transportation in so many ways. So that how we move became less energy expending. Uh, mm -hmm. Thirdly, you can think of the same thing at the workplace. First, it was creating the automation of the Ford factories long ago and creating assembly lines and bringing in equipment into them. And increasingly, in all forms of farming, mining, factory work, office work, we've constantly up updated it. We no longer have to even write. We can type. We can even use talk over 
a, a phone via the computer or otherwise and have a million ways of communicating for free now or for very low cost. So what we've done is even you'll see a group of kids of college students or high school kids sitting around texting each other rather than walking over and talking. <laughs> we don't move. So we've cut our movement. We changed and that came earlier. So that was the beginning of the obesity and and other problems. The rich started getting fat in the 50s a little bit, but it really turned out to be as diets changed and everything else changed, the poor became the leading brunt, but everybody in our country has gotten fatter. All socioeconomic groups, all race ethnic groups, everyone. In fact, the poor are the fattest and the least healthy today. Uh, but it's, they're not far ahead of, of higher income and higher education, educated people. So they just have better treatment, the latter, in medical care and other things. So that's how the world changed. And when it started in the US and Europe and, and really kept accelerating in our country, we started finding that the markets became saturated here for food and automated devices. And our industry created all these world trade organizations and before it earlier ones open up trade so they could bring in our automation our technologies our way our foods and other things into these other countries and we've transformed the world so today i have snacking going up in every country in asia and africa and latin america i have eating of ultra-processed, unhealthy food and beverages going up exponentially in every other country. It's a little more stable, relatively speaking, in the U.S. and the high-income country because they've saturated our market. They're still trying to sell us the snack more, and they're still fighting for market shares. But we don't increase our behavior. Only in snacking have we keep kept increasing it. And mm -hmm. the Today, the average snack for a teenager or young adult equals a meal. Yeah, wow. So that's the kind of revolution that we made for the world. And there's not a country in the world outside of the high-income world where the marketing hasn't increased and industry hasn't tried to take control of policy so they can have unfettered access to the bellies and of the world. Right. Well, I think that all was just very fascinating, but I think it's just great to have awareness of kind of what's going on and to be more alert to all of the marketing tactics that are constantly being used against you. And to know that it's not really, it's not your fault if you're quote unquote addicted to these ultra processed foods, because they're designed in a way to make you addicted and to make you crave more. So it's just weaning yourself off of them, right? And returning to whole foods as much as possible to kind That's of reset your body. Yes. Yeah. That's absolutely correct. And just to add one point on that, over the last decade, we've had huge random control trials at NIH and 35 COVID cohort studies following people for 10 or 20 years that have shown that this whole category ultra-processed food when we increase the amount of it, it has a bigger effect than any single nutrient 
on our risk of diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, cancers, uh, every kind of health problem, depression, gout. So the reality is that this food revolution that's gone on is killing us. It's increasing mm -hmm. our likelihood. That's why the life expectancy is going down in the U.S. today. Yeah. And, we're, and it's starting in other high-income countries. Uh, it's because our obesity and unhealthy diets are killing us. And until we move back to real food and beverages, move to water, teas, and coffees that are simpler, move, they can be flavored with citrus, but we need to go back to eating real food. We know that that will reduce our health problems across the board significantly. Hmm. Well, I'm again, so, so grateful for you sharing all of your knowledge today. Uh, the final question I ask each of my guests is in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? I think the health investment first starts with what we eat. And you cannot be healthy today unless you shift your diet to in a healthier way. And as you shift to real foods, your caloric intake will go down. They just are more filling. Secondly, we should exercise and move if we can, whether it's walking, running, doing biking, doing some stationary exercise in your house because you can't really walk well, any movement will help us stay healthy longer. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, so again, just very, very appreciative of you being on here today. I'd love to know when people want to find you and follow you, where is the best place for them to do that? Just Google. Okay. They'll find me and they'll find my pages and they'll find all we're doing. Okay, excellent. I'll, I'll do a little Googling and put some of your links in the show notes and link to your book as well. Right. Uh, great. I love I love that answer. Nobody's ever said that. So <laughs> we do care. have this powerful tool of Google. Yes, All right. And it's much simpler than any other. Take <laughs> so care. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.